0: And try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guests are Mike Carter and Stephen Henderson, co-founders of Fleet Zero. Fleet Zero is a recent MCJ collective investment that we're really proud about. They are building a fleet of electric ships to deliver cargo for their customers without a green premium. Decarbonizing shipping is hugely important it's a big source of emissions, it is difficult to decarbonize, and conventional wisdom says that electric just won't be viable. But Fleet Zero has found a way to do electric with swappable batteries that essentially, instead of just taking the existing way that logistics and shipping are done and electrifying it, they're actually changing the frame by using swappable batteries, by changing the routes, and at any rate, We get into details during the discussion, but it's fascinating to talk not only about how important it is to decarbonize shipping, but also what some of the biggest barriers are that have prevented it from being done already, what some of the opportunities are, and what Fleet Zero is doing to reimagine how decarbonizing shipping can happen effectively. Mike and Steven also have really interesting backgrounds. They grew up together in the mountains of North Carolina, which is a really conservative spot, and they weren't exactly surrounded by a bunch of climate activists. In this episode, we talk about their backgrounds and journey. We talk about the origin story for Fleet Zero. We talk about their progress to date, their long vision, what's coming next, some of the challenges that are holding them back, and some of the opportunities both for them and for others that are looking to have a similar impact on decarbonizing this very important industry. Mike, Stephen, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for having
0: us. Great to have you. Yeah. And disclosure up front, we're proud investors in Fleet Zero. So I know something about the business, but I still have so many questions and it's such an important area. And so this episode is partly to help others learn about you because we're proud to be involved, but it's also just for me to learn a lot more because as I said, I'm excited about your vision and the problem you're solving or I wouldn't be here, but I still have a lot to learn.
1: Yeah, I mean, first off, Jason, we just want to thank you again for all the support. You guys are are not just investors, but what you're doing just for the climate movement and also for Fleet Zero. You guys have been absolutely amazing, and we're just really grateful to be associated with you guys.
0: Well, likewise. And the other disclosure is that this is the first podcast I'm ever doing from my car parked next to my house so that I can use the house Wi-Fi because my house is a zoo right now. So it sounds okay so far, but if it sounds a little different than normal, that's why. So what's Fleet Zero, guys? Either one of you can take it. Doesn't matter.
1: Sure, we're building battery electric cargo ships, and our mission is to affordably decarbonize ocean freight. So maybe to unpack that, we looked at this industry and realized there's all sorts of technical solutions that you can make ships that have zero emissions or lower carbon impact on the world. But everything that we had looked at that was publicly being discussed was going to cost a lot more, and that's. Not just bad because it may make your coffee cost more or your t-shirts, but actually you know, when you increase the cost of something that's just so vital for the global economy, like freight, you really impact people in the globe. So I used to live in West Africa. I lived for a year in Congo and for a year in Guinea. And these are two countries that are really outside the global supply chain. And I saw what that does to an economy, to people. We realized that if the folks in the West decarbonize ships and everything costs 20% more or two times, you might be cutting billions of people out of the global supply chain. That just kind of a moral impetus to this. We said, hey, we've got to think about this industry. Is there a technology, the ways we can innovate and decarbonize ships without making it cost so much more? And not only that for the moral reasons, but if we want to do this in a timely manner and actually have an impact on the climate, we can't wait for regulations to force this. We need to lead with innovation and do something that there's a pull from industry. The companies want to use because it's cheaper, it's better service and it's green. And that's kind of the mission behind
0: fleets here. It'd be great to hear a little bit about each of your personal journeys to founding the company and when and how and why those journeys intersected.
2: If you've heard one of our stories, you've probably heard them both. Steven and I, we actually grew up together in the mountains of North Carolina, which a lot of people scratch their head about. It's pretty far away from the ocean. We just had this passion for sailing for the ocean. We had a passion for engineering and we wanted to serve our country. So, we were high schoolers. We were looking to go to a service academy. We didn't really want to study philosophy or literature or something. We wanted to do something that was technically challenging. We wanted to study engineering. So we had a local congressman at the time that really pushed us to go to the United States Merchant Marine Academy, which is not the most widely known of the service academies, but is really a crown jewel. It's just amazing the education that they're able to give you in terms of learning about ships. So we learned everything Pretty much, I think there is a know about ship propulsion and ship technology. So Stephen and I both attended there at the same time. And then our pathways diverged a little bit. I worked in the energy industry for a company called Transocean after the Macondo well incident or the BP oil spill. My job was to help figure out ways to ensure something like that, you know, just wouldn't happen again through refining our maintenance practices and procedures and the way that we conducted business and Thought that was a really interesting challenge. Also found out that the energy space really wasn't for me. So I took a left turn and uh, went into the software industry where I helped run a group of energy and shipping professionals and helped stand up that line of business for a software company. So Stephen and I, we came back together. Our pathways converged again after that short divergence. And we were able to see Fleet Zero through, something that we've been talking about for the better part of two decades.
0: And what about you, Steven? Stephen?
1: Yeah, so it's similar to Mike, you know, technical background, both marine engineers, ship nerds. Many folks have heard of naval architects. Naval architects design the outside of a ship. Marine engineers design the inside. So all the stuff that moves around and makes a ship go. So that's kind of our background. And much like Mike, we took our commissions in the military and the Navy as reservists and then went into private industry. So I did the same. Ended up working also for TransOcean, same sort of story as Mike, right out of school and then left that to go work for an NGO in West Africa called Mercy Ships. Fantastic organization, great mission. Got to see a a lot of really things that really impacted me personally. That's about the way the sort of forgotten economies of the world works. And there's this enormous part of the globe that are probably most exposed to climate change and also have the least tools at their disposal to do anything about it. And that just, you know, really hung with me. And I got a real passion for energy poverty. Maybe an anecdote around that. So in Guinea, Conakry, which is, I think, the third poorest country in the world, there used to be a beautiful forest that went all the way to the sea and now you have to drive several hours inland before you find trees because there's no energy grid or system to provide cooking fuel so the locals are forced to cut down this forest to make charcoal to cook which causes all sorts of lung problems injuries to children and obviously deforestation and all this and that's the ugly end of, of energy poverty so i went back Got an MBA, was fortunate enough. I think I was the admissions mistake at Harvard Business School. They allowed me in and was able to go through that program and then had this real passion for energy poverty, went to work at Shell, which was at the time, you know, I think they still are one of the most progressive traditional energy companies and got plugged into that uh, strategy group and then in operations, which was really eye-opening just to see how our energy economy works, how it's all held together. It was great, but realized that if we wanted to change this industry or really anything else that, that has to happen from innovative new entrants. while these big companies are there, they can play a part. And the energy transition and, and helping the economy go, that you know, really to do something fast and the time scales that are needed for climate change, it's gotta come through startups. It's gotta come from solutions that just aren't out there. So Mike and I had this continuing conversation for years about going back to our roots and shipping. We were really annoyed at a lot of the articles we had been reading, some of the strategy work that I saw.
0: Were you guys in the same geography when you were going back and forth? Or was this digital? Was it text, phone, Zoom? I'm just curious. It's a random question.
1: Yeah, we were actually, Mike was in Houston, I was in New Orleans when this was going on.
0: And so what was your preferred mode of going back and forth like old men on rocking chairs? Was that live, like on phone? Or how did this back and forth tactically happen?
2: Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny, because when we had this aha moment with Fleet Zero, we were both, I think, like on FaceTime or something. That's typically how we talk to one another. And I was sitting in my backyard, Stephen in his backyard. And about a month after that aha moment that we had, we were both talking and we could swore we were together during that moment. Like we were both in the same place. I was visiting New Orleans or he was visiting Houston when in fact we were miles apart, separated, just talking over a phone.
1: And that aha moment, it was kind of an out-of-body experience. And it's where we realized this sort of technical aspect So electrifying ships is really hard. It's not obvious, like how you do it. If you just do sort of a front level first pass math, that doesn't seem to make sense. And we realized that grid, clean grid electricity is the only way to really, truly decarbonize shipping that's affordable. It's just a storage problem. How do you get over the fact that batteries are expensive? So we were really noodling on that and we figured out something that to us was really groundbreaking and it was kind of this out-of-body experience we were so excited we're just sketching it out on paper modeling it on a computer and later conversations we forgot that we weren't actually in the same room and i could have swore that he was in new orleans on the back porch of my house looking over a park and he thought i was sitting
0: next to
2: his pool in houston when we were remembering that conversation
0: and what is it that's so hard about electrifying ships
2: so initially, Stephen mentioned this earlier, but we were reading these articles about decarbonizing the uh, ocean freight space. And everything we read from the marine engineers in us, we just fundamentally, with a lot of things, agreed with and a lot of things disagreed with. You know, we read batteries would never work to decarbonize ocean freight. And so we had to run through the mental model ourselves and kind of crunch some of those numbers. So we did. We have tried to figure out what it would take in terms of batteries to get something like the MMAERS from the east coast of China to the west coast of the United States.
1: Niamh America is one of the biggest ships in the world. So that's just an example. We're not picking on, on that ship or, or that company, but it's you know, one of these really big ships you see in Long Beach.
2: 24,000 containers, something like what you would see sitting off the coast of Long Beach right now, waiting to come into port. So we did that math. And the size of battery you would need is something like, something basically like the surface area of a tennis court, two miles tall. It was like, we couldn't even fathom how big this battery system or battery pack would need to be. And interestingly enough, the ship actually could technically do it. (laughs) It could haul the weight of the batteries and the volume, but it just was so impractical. There's no room for cargo. So we're like, okay, you know what? Maybe you can't electrify these giant ships.
1: But then we started to unpack it and we started to think about it. And you know, where we got that battery size is we looked at the energy that's stored in the fuel tanks of a ship and said, all right, let's convert that, you know, do some math, convert that to batteries. And we realized, okay, wait, we're solving the wrong problem. There's a higher order problem. The higher order problem is you don't need to electrify that ship. You need to move cargo with electricity from China to the US. So we said, all right, let's sort of rethink this. Like, what is this ship? So there's really big ships. They're actually hyper-optimized around lowering fuel costs because fuel's the biggest cost on the P&L for these companies that are operating. And we realize that a ship that can carry 20,000 containers, it has enough fuel capacity to circumnavigate the globe and more. And the reason they do that is the fuel's so expensive, they they pick one place, let's say Singapore in the Pacific, and they'll go to Singapore and they'll fill up there once every now and then, and they'll get the best deal they can on fuel and essentially like a physical hedge on fuel price. So instead of hopping in each port and taking fuel, which is really expensive, they get it directly from the refinery as cheaply as possible. And the storage on the vessel is essentially free. It's just a metal tank. Once it's there, it's there. You very little maintenance. So you have free storage, expensive fuel. We realize, okay, we've got a different problem with batteries. You've got really relatively cheap fuel with expensive storage. So what does it look like to operate a ship with expensive fuel tanks and cheap fuel? Well, you're going to have smaller fuel tanks and the ship may be smaller because you don't need to have as long of a range and you might make more stops to refuel. And how do you do that? How do you do that faster? We realize, okay, you can't build the fuel tank into the ship. It needs to be swappable. So we realized battery swapping was going to be necessary to run an efficient business. And something really kind of amazing happened. This was this out-of-body sort of aha revelation that we had is that if you separate the batteries from the ship, you can share those batteries across multiple vessels and our technology and what we've been building enables doing this in such a way that you use actually fewer batteries to move the same amount of cargo that you would if you had a plug-in model. So by doing battery swapping, we can move more cargo with fewer batteries And what that does is effectively, if you look at long-term average freight rates and do the math and break down what it's like to operate a shipping company, it gives us something like five or six times higher margins than a traditional fossil fuel ship. And I don't mean it today as like inflated freight rates, I mean at decade average freight rates. But to do it, you've got to think of a shipping company in a bit of a different way, solve that higher order problem. It's not about electrifying the biggest ships of the day, it's about moving cargo with electricity on ships. So our model uses somewhat smaller vessels and more of them and they share swappable batteries across a network which is pretty different than what's out there today
0: Uh uh-huh so if i'm hearing right it sounds like the traditional model is to take the ship and load it with fuel and enable to go for a long time and that ship needs to get there assuming without any stops because the price of fuel is unpredictable? Did I get that part right so far?
1: Yeah, it's not that it's unpredictable. You know, the fuel that ships burn is so kind of unwanted. It's called residual fuel. It's very thick. You have to heat it if you want to pump it. Uh, So it's actually very expensive to move around. So the best way to get it is at a refinery. And for example, in the Pacific, Singapore has a refinery right there that can sell to these ships this fuel. So they're just hyper-optimized around their fuel source. And we said, all right, like, what would it look like to hyper-optimize ships around our fuel source, which is electricity stored in batteries, and you end up with a system that just looks different, solving for a different set of constraints. And I think that's what folks had missed in the past in the industry when they did a cursory look at what it takes to electrify shipping.
0: Yeah, because they assume that it's just changing the fuel source and nothing else. And what you're saying is, well, actually, if you change everything, then potentially the fuel source could plug into a different frame, which means the fuel source could take a different shape than what you might thought was possible when you were comparing it with the existing frame only.
1: Yeah, exactly. And using smaller vessels, when I say smaller, these are solely really the big ships, right? So a ship that can carry 20,000 containers, that's sort of the largest that's out there. That's like the one that stuck in the Suez Canal and made the news a few months back. That's one of those really big ships. Our ships carry four to 5,000 containers, so they're still very big. They end up being about a fourth the size from a length standpoint, and that's more like ships have been in most of the last century, so the, the average size of ships has increased every decade since the 50s, and that's, again, driven by fuel cost. So we're actually kind of going back to the heart of the logistics system as it was built in the last century all the port infrastructure, all the roads, everything around shipping is actually built and designed for smaller vessels. And these really big ships, while they lower fuel costs, are actually really bad for the global supply chain. They're so big, there's only a few ports they can go into. So there's all these sort of underutilized ports along the West Coast and the U.S., for example, that these big ships can't call on, can't go into. And it's sort of wasted infrastructure. So we took a tour On the west coast of long beach a little while back to go look at all these ships that were stuck out there and now our north is a port called wainimi which does not have delays and there's a number of reasons why it's not being used but one of the big ones is these ships are too big to go into a lot of these underserved ports like everett washington or port of portland further up the west coast
0: so can you talk a bit about where are we with decarbonizing shipping in general. And as we gear up to get more aggressive about it, what are the different approaches that are being talked about the most or most viable in potentially bringing that about?
1: Yeah. So everyone's got a favorite, depending on their sort of like background and interest in this conversation, right? So energy companies like like Shell favors hydrogen, for example, other energy companies do. And I think if you look into that, it's because that's a, maybe a comparative advantage that they would have in delivering that. Methanol is another that some carriers have looked at. And then ammonia, that's probably the top three. So these are fuels that are gaseous or liquid fuels that would be burnt in some sort of combustion engine. You could put hydrogen through a fuel cell, but essentially you have a, basically the same concept that you have today, except the fuel maybe has a different density.
0: So cleaner fuels, but the frame stays the same, essentially?
1: The same drivers would be at play, right? So you would still want a very big ship You want big fuel tanks, and you would fill up at a few selective places, and that's kind of what you would do with a liquid fuel model. And the issue with that is that, for one, residual fuel is what you're competing against, what the state of the art today is. IFO, or international fuel, the heavy fuel that ships burn is so cheap that it's really hard to compete with. It's what's left over after they take all the good stuff out of a barrel of oil. And refineries are practically giving this away. A huge part of the cost with it is actually... With the transportation, not even just the, the creation of it. And the problem is kind of a safe fuel to operate with. I tell a story sometimes when I'm explaining this to folks. When I first went on to a ship, I was 18. I didn't know anything. It was very kind of green. And this really salty chief engineer took me down to the engine room. And he was smoking a cigarette, which he used to be able to do on ships. And he walks and he says, this is the fuel pump. And it's dripping with fuel. It's very wet. You know, He takes a cigarette out and puts it out on the fuel sitting on top of this fuel pump he's just watching me, right? He's just trying to scare me and he did. But he's teaching me a lesson. He's trying to show me this very important principle with diesel engines is that the fuel these ships burn is really hard to ignite and it's kind of inert most of the time. So it's okay if it leaks out of things. If that fuel had been any of the three I mentioned, hydrogen, ammonia, or methanol, you know, we would have died just when he walked in the door with that cigarette, right? So hydrogen is extremely flammable. It's hard to contain. Ammonia is toxic to humans and wildlife, And methanol is also toxic, can cause you to go blind, just getting it in your skin. So all these things, right? So you need a more expensive ship that has higher capex to make sure that you don't have fuel leaks, right? Because that's no longer acceptable. And then the fuel itself costs more. So you're looking at creating a new global infrastructure for either of these fuels, ammonia, hydrogen, or methanol, or any biofuel, for that example, you need to create all new infrastructure globally to where the fuel stations, you need to have totally new ships that cost a lot more, and then the fuel itself costs more. So that's where Mike and I were just banging our head against the wall saying this can't be the future of shipping. We just don't see that. There's got to be a better way and let's kind of go back to first principles and think about it.
0: And so when you came to that conclusion, what next? Where'd you start?
1: We went broad. We thought about kind of everything from one of the craziest ideas we had was heating up salt to liquefied, pumping on the ship and then cooling it down which, you know, I think folks have researched sort of grid storage. We looked at compressed air. A lot of these things were just sort of, once you really got into the engineering, were kind of hilariously infeasible. And we realized that there's all these advantages to electrification and that there's multiple technologies to store it. And there's really high efficiencies in converting it to mechanical energy. So a diesel engine, a really good diesel engine on a ship, might be 40% efficient at its kind of peak efficiency rating. But most of the time, the ships don't operate at that point. They're operating at a much lower speed and then lower on their efficiency curve. So a lot of times, ships' efficiencies are in the teens or 20s. An electric motor can operate on a range of powers at a much higher efficiency. So you actually need less energy to begin with if you're using electricity, which is huge. That bar keeps getting lower as you think about it. I mean, if you realize you don't need to go as far, and you know, we just started doing the math and realized that you get to a point where it makes sense. My
2: yeah, and aside from the efficiency gains that you get from going to an electric powertrain system, which there's a lot of benefits with that, there's all these other unintended benefits that you get. So you think about like EV cars, like when they first came about, you saw that, you know, you could remove the engine that was previously there make a space for a trunk. And that was like pretty novel. That was interesting to think about. I'm
0: sitting in my EV car that has... Space for a trunk where the engine used to be, so now you get all
2: this extra room for cargo. And much like a ship,
0: I'll keep all my podcasting equipment since this is my new studio.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so that's, that's exactly right. So when we started looking at this, we said, okay, well, when we can electrify a ship, we can get rid of all of the diesel equipment that was previously in there. So the diesel engines, the heaters, the purifiers, every other piece of auxiliary equipment that goes along with that. A lot of piping, pipe trunks, which are. You have places where pipes run and sometimes they're big enough to get a human through it. So a lot of wasted space there. The fuel tanks, which Stephen mentioned earlier, ships have been optimized around these giant fuel tanks. You get rid of some of that stuff and then you get rid of some of the ballast tanks because for every gallon of fuel oil you burn, you have to replace it with seawater to make sure the ship can remain stable. So when you start getting rid of all this stuff, we realize there's all this extra room for cargo, which significantly would help a, a shipping business. And we're still heavy in the engineering of this, trying to figure out if we can completely get rid of ballast water that we're taking from the outside into the ship. And the reason for that is evasive species. You know, it's a big issue when you're picking up water, say in one part of the world and transporting a ship and goods to another, and then dumping that water into that local environment. So there's a lot of areas that have been affected by that. And so electrification also could lend itself to perhaps getting rid of some of the ballast water and going to more to a permanent ballast type of model. So a lot of things as we started unpacking this, we just became more and more clear that electrification was the right way to go.
1: The other benefits that, you know, diesel engines have thousands of moving parts, and they are constantly breaking, they constantly need to be rebuilt. And this is kind of where Mike and I earned our chops, cut our teeth, and and shipping is is working on diesels and gas turbines. And with an electric drivetrain, they're just as way fewer things to break and certainly fewer things to maintain. And that's maybe the second and third biggest expenses on a ship's operation is its maintenance and its crew that are there doing the maintenance. So when you go for an electric drivetrain, you need fewer mechanics. You need fewer folks out there. You need fewer folks doing really dangerous things at sea. And you have less spare parts and less consumables. 5% of the typical operating costs for most diesel ships is lubricating oil. And that's just something that doesn't even show up as an expense for an electric ship. It's just such a minimal part of it. And that's just one of many, many things. So as you start to unpack this, there's all these unintended benefits. Mike and I used to sail on sailboats in New York. And these boats are so graceful in the water. It's kind of the design of sailboats has evolved over thousands of years of iterations from countless cultures. And they just reinteracts so naturally with the ocean. And a diesel ship is like the opposite of that. It's like this square peg in a round hole. And when you go back and you sort of rethink ships from a purpose-built electric standpoint, it's way closer to that hand-in-glove. It fits with the environment. It's just way more natural from an engineering standpoint, a naval architecture standpoint, to build a ship around an electric drivetrain. And to be clear, we're not starting out building our own ships from the ground up. We are starting into conversions. So our first several ships, likely the first eight, will be conversions of existing diesel ships. And that's just for speed and to move quick because you can't rebuild the entire global fleet. So we think it's important to be able to retrofit, but we are thinking and we know that purpose-built electric ships will be the future and they just give you so many advantages.
0: So correct me if I'm wrong here though, but everything you just said, that isn't necessarily new information generally that everyone would agree. And again, correct me if I'm wrong, that electric would be better if it were viable, right? But I think the reason it hasn't been pursued before is not, and again, I'm saying it like a statement, but it's really a question of, it's not like people didn't know that it was better if it were viable. They just assumed that it wasn't viable, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there's sort of like two big things that most people miss. For one, a lot of times, a lot of the calculations you read, it's really based on battery data and performance that's more than five years old or more than three years old. And to be clear, this has really only become economic in the last three to five years with the improvement of of certain battery chemistries being commercially available. And the other bigger one is battery swapping. Battery swapping is the difference from this being economical for one to 2,000 mile range versus truly going across the Pacific or the Atlantic and being able to do battery swapping and the efficiencies you get, meaning fewer batteries for the same amount of cargo moved. That's what gives us a cost advantage in long range shipping. And pulling that off was the real aha, and like how that happens, and our core IP and technologies around enabling that.
0: Uh huh. And I'd love to just double click on that for a moment because it's like, okay, gosh, there's all these challenges with the liquid fuels that are going to make it hard for this to unseat the incumbent oil. But that incumbent oil really needs to be unseated because we need to decarbonize. Gosh, it'd be great if electric worked, but it's just not going to work for any type of range. And so I get that swappable is what makes it possible, but how'd you come to that?
1: It was actually because of a challenge that someone threw out at us. So we talked to a really early advisor who retired from the Navy and we were talking about this and we said, all right, you know, electric ships, we actually picked a short route that we thought it would be economical on. And we said, all right, look, you can't plug this ship in the port. There's no place to plug it. And it would take forever to charge anyways. So so you have to have a battery swapping system. And we said, okay, for this point to point, the route we looked at was actually Miami to Puerto Rico. And we said, all right, let's say it's hundred batteries you need on the ship to go between Miami and Puerto Rico. And the guy pointed out, and our advisor said, look, if you are doing battery swapping, you need 300 batteries, you know, in that example, right? You need 100 batteries in Puerto Rico. You need 100 batteries in Miami and 100 on the ship because you got to have that other set when you show up there. And we're thinking, oh, my gosh, it's ruined. So that was our setback. And then we, we were really scratching our heads. we looked at it and said, OK, well, what if you had two ships? Well, if you had two ships, you need 400 batteries to make this work. And if you need three ships, 500 batteries. And now, like, how many batteries per ship are you talking about? Okay, that's interesting. Like, it's starting to get more, like, maybe asymptotically approaching back to a, a model where you just had 100 batteries per ship. And we realize if you put a stop in the way, in the middle, then each of those ships only need 50 batteries to make it halfway. And if they do a battery swap somewhere in the middle, that now, if you do the math, how many batteries per ship, if you had five or six ships operating, and it gets to a point, and it's very counterintuitive, and it is a bit of a logistics thing. But if you get to it, you get to a point where you can use fewer than 100 batteries per ship to make this work. And there are very practical numbers of ships and stops and really real routes with real cargo that this works in the real world. And it's actually not uncommon for ships to make stops. Right now, they do it for cargo. They do it for maintenance. They do it for all sorts of reasons. So we started looking at ship behavior and making sure we weren't losing something and making these stops. And we realized this happens today with even the very big ships, very few go point to point. Most of them make multiple stops along the journey just for cargo. And then more and more. So I'll stop there. But that's sort of maybe the teaser premise behind how battery swapping works and how we came to that.
0: And are there corollaries or sources of inspiration that led you to this where it's like, oh, this is actually working in this unrelated space. But if we could borrow that and apply it here, you know, almost like a remix or a mashup or something, or is this something that just kind of started with a dream and a clean slate?
1: I think the battery swapping piece started with a problem. I hope that there are corollaries going into like heavy trucking and other directions where or trains perhaps where battery swapping, we can prove it on ships and that it might work for a train platform. As you get to smaller vehicles, it gets harder and harder just because there isn't infrastructure there to perform swapping. So our batteries are built into the same container format that cargo is. So pretty much every port in the world can handle containerized cargo, can handle our batteries. Every truck that carries a container can carry out batteries. And so that was kind of a hand-in-glove fit, just unique to ships, where you already have that capability. You don't have to make new cranes, for example, at a truck stop to swap out batteries. So the remix is, in the 50s, we containerized cargo, and now we're containerizing propulsion.
0: Okay. And if I'm a company that ships goods, let's say, all over the world, and I have a system in place that's delivering for all of my use cases, does working with you require changing that frame that I'm using across everything that I'm doing? Or can it just be for one subset and keep doing everything else the same? And the reason I ask is because I'm assuming, given what you just mentioned, that there are some scenarios where this model is not viable so that you can't provide 100% coverage for these companies. And is that a deal breaker?
1: That's a great question. And we're solving for routes that matter most to our customers. And we've got great relationships with companies that we're calling launch partners that that own cargo. And a lot of those are at the moment confidential. Be happy to share some of those soon. But yeah, we're working specifically with logistics departments and some of the biggest companies in America on that exact question. What we found, pitched back to us from them, is that most of the time, this actually unconstrains their supply chain. Right now they are in a pinch point or pain because there's so few places to bring in ocean cargo. We can bring cargo in to other ports that don't have the delays. And we are attempting, at least for the most of our fleet, to have American flagged vessels, which have a preference in ports, meaning that American flagship coming into Long Beach does not have to wait in line. It can jump in. There's protections laws there called the Jones Act that enable these ships to skip the line. And because we're an American company, i one of very few American shipping companies, and our team is all American mariners. I think that that was sort of a natural step for us, and that's what we're working towards. So we actually end up providing a lot more flexibility to be supply chain professionals than they otherwise have.
0: So I get that there's that flexibility where it works. I guess my question is, how prevalent are the areas that don't work because there aren't those small frogger jumps in a row the way they need to be? Yeah.
1: I see what you're saying. So I mean, most of the world's cargo moves on a coastal route even between China and say Long Beach and California. So if you stretch a string across a globe, you're actually on a coastal route. If you go between those two cities, you go way closer to Alaska than you do say to Hawaii. So a route that's like less natural for this is like between LA and Hawaii, where there just aren't any stops in between. Now it's also really expensive to send things to Hawaii. So at current freight rates, it, it would still be economic on batteries. But it's not necessarily a strong suit where you don't have a stop in that Allen route. But that's a rarity. Most cargo does move on a coastal route. So a significant portion.
0: And you mentioned that you have some early customers that you're working with. Maybe talk a bit about what types of companies are the sweet spot for your entry into the market and what the stated value proposition is to them and how much that changes from customer to customer versus being consistent across the board.
1: There's like maybe three ways we add value, and I'll I'll let Mike talk to one, but I'll I'll talk to the first two. But right now, these customers are really getting stuck with just the state of the supply chain. And Jones Act, particularly shipping, so that's on coastal routes in the US, is very expensive, very difficult to find solutions at all. So we provide a future, albeit solution, for that tactical problem that they face. A lot of these companies really care about reducing their scope 3 emissions, and they just aren't. A lot of solutions out there so the type of companies we're talking to big box retailers we've got letters of intent from major retailers across verticals so whether it's apparel or department stores electronic stores furniture and even industrial companies and these are the types of customers that we have and yeah the value proposition for most of them is what mike's going to talk about which is you know this tactical way to address their scope 3 emissions and partnering with us but also just like working with our supply chain teams as we route plan when we build our next four vessels, for example, where those vessels operate. And we're working specifically with these customers to make sure it hits their needs.
2: We tried to cast, like Stephen said, a really wide net here. I think that's important to highlight. Like just about everybody ships things over the ocean. You know, 90% of the world's goods travel over the ocean. So as we were identifying launch partners, we really wanted to find folks that cared about the environment, cared about making an impact. They weren't greenwashing. They really you know, were putting their money where their mouth was. So some of these launch partners, like Steven said, they represent each kind of industry micro vertical. The short-term value proposition for them is being a part of this launch event. So about the middle of next year, we're going to have our first prototype vessel that's going to be operating. It's going to break a bunch of records. It's going to make a lot of press and news events. It's going to be a really exciting time. We're going to have a vessel that we're going to convert to be a battery electric vessel. We're planning to go about 500 to 750 miles. And as part of that event, we're going to have our launch partners have branded containers that we're going to put on the back deck of the ship. And we're going to demonstrate to the world that not only is battery electric shipping possible, but these are the brands that really care about it and are, are making an impact. And so Stephen had mentioned you know, the route planning is going to be wildly important in between now and that launch event time. And that's where we're going to be strategically planning where we're going to operate these first couple of routes. We're super excited about that. I think another thing that's kind of interesting for us, and we didn't necessarily realize this at the onset, but there's a pretty big demand that we found for our battery packs. So these are highly energy dense, ruggedized marine grade battery packs. We had a, initially went out looking to buy these packs and couldn't find anything that like them that existed. If there's something close to it, there's a lot of safety concerns, which we've all spent time on ships. We've all been on shipboard fires. It's not cool. Right. So we decided strategically we just we have to build our own battery pack. We've got to build it for the marine environment. And so we ended up talking to a lot of folks over the last couple of months that would have a use for these battery packs ports, especially on the west coast of the United States and California, there's a cold ironing law that's coming into effect that basically says ships have to plug in when they come into port, gotta shut off their engines. There's no great solutions for that. And we can totally dive into the details of this, but I'll spare you. It's much more a cost advantage to basically plug a ship into a battery pack than into the grid. And then there's other interesting areas in the marine space for these battery packs as well. So just another area on the customer front on what we're value that we're looking to provide to ocean shippers as well as to folks that could benefit from these type of energy storage solutions built for the marine environment
0: I'm glad you brought that up because it leads to a follow up question that I was planning to ask anyways, which is that, okay, so you uncover this approach that by changing the frame and having this kind of rotational structure with smaller stops, it makes the, and smaller ships, it makes the batteries viable. And then over time, I would assume as the costs come down and the technology gets better and stuff, you can do bigger ships as well. But I guess my question is, you just lay that out there for any of the existing players that are hearing that. What stops them from just going and doing that? How is this defensible and in which ways?
1: Yeah, it's really hard to make marine battery packs. And you need to bring together folks, not only with battery experience, but with true sort of marine chops. We're moving really fast. We've got a lot of really unique ways that we've come up to make battery packs safe for ships. Just to put it in perspective, Maybe some of your listeners have seen the news of the ship that burnt down with EV cars on board. That was a fire. It was really hard to put out. The ship's crew had to abandon the ship. So it just shows that, you know, battery packs can be dangerous for a vessel. That was in our sort of design basis. Our first principle was we have to find a way to make these battery packs safe on a ship. So most of our team, Mike mentioned this in passing, but most of our team has actually been in a shipboard fire. I've been in a room full of burning diesel and it uh, changes you to be in a situation like that so it's more than just sort of the academic knowledge that fire safety is important so our battery packs have a lot of innovative ways of being safe intrinsically we use the chemistries that don't self-oxidize so that if there were to be a fire it can be extinguished well before that our packs are ruggedized they're meant to be stable if they're dropped or penetrated If you walk around a shipyard today, you'll see containers that have holes in them where someone drove a forklift into it. I find bullet holes inside of containers when I was at sea, just because sometimes people shoot at containers or shoot at container ships. And you can't have that catch on fire, which would be the case if you used a lot of the batteries that are out there. So the pack that we've made, we think it's absolutely the safest, most robust marine battery pack. And we're submitting our patent application actually Monday for several of the things that we've got inside of that that provide that
0: safety. So it sounds like, and saying this is a statement, but asking it as a question, that there's some differentiation with the battery itself, that there's some differentiation with the swapping system, and it sounds like some technology that's involved with with making that so as well that these are powering a service and that you're starting with retrofits, but ultimately you envision that chips could be built. Is there a fork in the road where you need to decide, are you a battery company? Are you a ship company? Are you providing the service that powers lots of different battery makers and ship companies? Or is it Apple where you try to do everything and end? Like, How do you think about these focus areas and whether they're distinct or, I guess, how are you thinking about them today? And also, how are you thinking about them long-term?
1: No, that's fantastic. I mean, look, our goal is to decarbonize shipping as quickly as possible. And we know the fastest way to do that is to build our packs and to operate the ships ourselves to begin with. We want to build a really big business around that. We think it's a huge opportunity.
0: Operate ships that you build?
1: We build or convert for ourselves. We're certainly open to selling and licensing our technology to other shipping operators. We certainly want to get value for that. We think the future of shipping is electric. And we think we've got the best way to do that. And lots of defensible IP on that journey. And we just want to make it happen as fast as possible. And for us, that wasn't thinking of the idea and then trying to sell the battery packs to an existing operator. It's just let's go operate this. That's the fastest way to prove this works to others. And when others see this, they're gonna want to buy our technology, they're gonna wanna partner with us. And you know, we're certainly open to that. And I think what we're building is very difficult to replicate for existing shipping companies because you have to operate the vessels differently. It requires really sort of a different premise. And it's difficult for other sort of non-incumbent startups to come in and tackle this space. Mike and I are mission-driven and we hope that lots of other companies are started, that they're trying to tackle decarbonizing every industry, including the marine space. We kind of welcome that, but we think that to do this, it has to be a new entrant. It's a really tough thing. Chips are intimidating. And if we didn't have decades of experience in this industry, I don't think there's any way we could have approached it.
0: Where does route planning fit into this and how important is it? It's
1: huge. And that's why we're working really closely with our launch partners on that. And what we find is there's pretty strong consensus that the goal is to go from Asia to the US and to do that as quickly as possible. And then there's intermediate routes along the way. But yeah, the devil's in the details. And that's why we've got these launch partners on board.
0: And who does the route planning? Is it the end customer? Is it the current freight forwarder? Are there dedicated software companies that just do that and only that? Like, what does that landscape look like?
1: Yeah, at its highest level, you know, we work directly with the customers. Customers for us can be freight forwarders as well as actually beneficial cargo owners of companies that that own the products that that are being shipped. It's kind of like a hotel. We're selling nights in the hotel. It's like, you know, voyages on our ship. And you can book a hotel through a travel agent or book it directly. And that tends to be what happens on ships as well. So that's maybe the way to think about it.
0: So long term, if Fleet Zero is wildly successful beyond what you can even fathom, what have you achieved? And also, what does the company look like at that time in terms of what products or services it's providing?
1: Yeah, I I think we operate a fleet network of ships and batteries for other ships, for other operators across ocean basins, uh, the Atlantic and the Pacific, as well as coastal routes in Europe and the U.S., and that our technology and what we've pioneered powers shipping globally for riverine transport as well as ocean transport and coastal transport. And I hope there's plenty of very viable shipping operators that that use our technology, and that's how we see expanding as quickly as we can in decarbonizing what is a billion tons of carbon a year out of this uh, industry.
0: And do you think that this framework should ultimately be standardized across All of shipping, or do you think it's gonna fit best in this type and there's still gonna be room for other approaches because this type isn't gonna be the best fit across all the use cases for decarbonizing shipping overall?
1: Yeah, you're kind of air quotes experts on any topic will say, oh, there's a smattering of solutions. But I think if you look in history, one technology tends to win out, and then there's applications for others, and I think that will be the same and shipping and Generally, it's whatever's the lowest cost and the highest kind of performance, and that will be electrified shipping. So I think that will be the dominant mode. I think what you'll see for specialty applications are different ways of containerized energy storage or generation on board the vessel. So that may be a fuel cell, could be a modular nuclear reactor on board, and that may be in the future for special military applications and really long-range voyages where you really can't make stops. I think the norm will be electrons stored in containers in one form or fashion, powering a ship. It's just, there's too many benefits to not have that.
0: And do you have a bias in terms of whether you are enabling the existing players to do it better or unseating them with a better approach?
1: I think we just want to make sure this happens and we want to build the best company around this as we can and the biggest company as quickly as possible. So for us, that's becoming an operator as well. That said, I think if we had this amazing technology that could help the world and we kept it just to ourselves, it wouldn't be very magnanimous. We are, again, mission-driven and we want to find a way. At one point, it will become faster to outsource our technologies to others than to just operate every vessel in the world, right? So I don't see a future where literally every ship in the world we operate, but we will be a significant shipping operator as well as a provider of technology to other operators.
0: So it'd be great if you just talk about the future in terms of how you think about staging, what the key goals are of the next stage, and and also kind of a follow-up or a sister question is just how do you think about capitalizing the company and source of capital to deliver at those next few stages, let's say?
1: I can outline a little bit of that. So right now we have two full-voltage prototypes for our battery packs. We're going to build eight more and convert the vessel that Mike mentioned for our launch event in the middle of 2023. That will be kind of record setting from a marine technology standpoint. And obviously we want to have, include our launch partners in the press event around that. So that's our next sort of milestone. Going from there, we'll convert four vessels and then another four. So in in two batches, that will be for operation, most likely on the West Coast. Again, working with our launch partners about where the ships operate. From there, we'll increase the number on that Pacific route. I think sort of the midterm, long-term goal is, is 20 vessels operating. You know, Shanghai to Long Beach, we'll expand further into Vietnam during that time as well, because there's a lot of cargo coming from there. We'll also look at East Coast operation. About that time, we'll be looking at outsourcing our battery network and system to other operators. That's our path. You know, everybody when you start a company, you want to make this spread mapping milestone. But you know, as a startup, you kind of make the next best decision and you keep an eye towards your sort of North Star, which is for us making us as big and successful a company as fast as possible so that we can have a meaningful impact on the environment.
0: Well, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? Isn't that, was it Mike Tyson that said that?
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Your listeners can't see the gray hairs on uh, Mike and I's young faces, but we've received a few punches in our careers. So we're (laughs) familiar with that.
0: (laughs) How far do you think equity can take you and what other source of capital might you consider, if any?
1: The current administration and even past administrations have actually really favored American innovation in the maritime space. So there's a lot of programs out there from the Department of Transportation, MARAD, Department of Energy that encourage what we're doing. And I think that we'll have some great opportunities for debt and other non-dilutive funding. We're open for that. Equity gives us the fastest pathway. Equity powers the world. So we are raising a seed round here at the end of March into April as part of Y Combinator. So we're excited for that. We've got lots of great conversations queued up. And uh, that will power us through our first uh, vessel conversion. From there, I think we're going to bring in some grants and then start working on some of the DOT and DOE loans for building our battery network and converting the next four vessels.
0: Where do you guys need help? Who do you want to hear from?
2: We're always looking for folks that ship stuff on the ocean, which is just about everybody. So we're trying to expand our, our launch partner network here as we gear up for that launch event. So certainly folks that ship things over the ocean would be helpful. I think, you know, folks that are just thought leaders in the space, we're always open to ideas and opinions. We don't claim to have everything figured out, you know, about this technology and what we're trying to do. And there's been a lot of really good advice along the way. So we'd love to hear from you if you have some unique, compelling ideas or things that even challenging us really helps us to refine our approach for a lot of what we're doing. So
1: and we're looking for good people as well. So we've been just absolutely humbled by the outpouring of folks that have wanted to help us. One of our employees actually asked us if we could cut his pay in half so we could hire someone else. We didn't do that. But why I mentioned that is when we wake up in the morning, we're really excited about what we're doing. And we find that the folks that are on our team and are supporting us uh, you know, have the same. One of our engineers texted me and said, I can't wait for Monday. And I said, well, you don't have to stop working on the weekends. It's been really fun and it keeps us going. And I think, uh, you know, Mike and I, and most of our team, but not all of them, are maritime folks. And uh, this is our industry and we want to see it stay relevant and be leading in climate not following.
0: And uh, along those lines, if you could change one thing outside of the scope of your control that would most accelerate your progress here, what would you change and how would you change it?
1: I think that the gut reaction is something about regulations and carbon pricing and all of that. I think what I would change is I wish there were 10 more companies like us that were starting these really hard to decarbonize industries from a technology standpoint, from using capital markets, using capitalism and technology for good in areas that are kind of maybe unsexy. I wish there were 10 more companies like us. That's what I wish.
0: What about you, Mike?
2: Yeah, I think I would say, I don't know, maybe you hear this a lot, but like regulation, you know, the governing authority or body for the maritime communities, the IMO, Right now they've got targets, I think, set for 2050 or so. I'd love to see those pulled in a bit. The reason they're so far out there is because it's just not a technology solution that makes sense. I mean, a lot of these ship operators, you know, are looking, they've got 20-year plans and their capital base doesn't kind of become up for a refresh, at, but every 20 years or so. So, And the regulatory bodies, I think, are okay with that, at least pushing these really far. I think if you were to bring that up a little bit, it would force companies to work just a little bit quicker. To tackle this problem
0: great and any parting words guys anything i didn't ask that i should have or or uh parting words for listeners
1: just super grateful for all the support again i know we think in the beginning but you guys mcj has been absolutely wonderful and supporting us and uh, we're just grateful to be associated with you guys and look if you're interested in decarbonizing shipping and helping out you know reach out to us we love what we're doing and we love people who also love that mission so reach out
0: Well, thank you both, guys. Thanks for allowing us to come on the journey. Thanks for coming on the show. And thanks for the important work that you're doing. Best of luck to you and the team. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on My Climate Journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co.